All right, we are in week seven of Ephesians, and uh, I know I say this periodically, but I want to reiterate this, that if you're new to the Bible, you're new to hope. Um, uh, most often, we, are, we preach through a book of the Bible, uh, and the reason why we do that, again, is because there are, uh, that's how it was written, in the sense that, that the book, the letter to the Ephesians, that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the uh, church in Ephesus, and it would have just been read in one, in one sitting, which is great, but the, the Apostle Paul has a lot packed in uh, when he writes. And so we just want to take the time, uh, kind of walk through this. And again, the reason why we do that is because sometimes topics come up that we just normally, humanly speaking, don't want to talk about. Uh, Paul talked about this, Paul, our elder, not the Apostle. I mean, he did, did it too, I guess, but um, uh, our Paul uh, preached last week just highlighting how bad we are. Right, and that's like that's one of those things where it's like, ah, that's not going to draw the crowds. You know what I mean? I don't want to tell people, yeah, you're all sinners. See you next week. Right? That's, but, but yet that's what that's how this book is written and how this letter is written out. And and obviously we take time uh, during certain times of the year to to highlight specific things and topics and things that pertain to us in our context. Um, and so, uh, but anyways, that's why we're doing it. so week seven in Ephesians, and we're kind of in week two of three. We've kind of been doing these mini-series in these books, and so this is kind of week uh, two of three, looking at Ephesians chapter two, one through ten, and so uh, that's what we're going to be looking at today. But uh, before we do that, I want to uh, share a little bit of, of my, my past. I know some of you uh, know this about me, but uh, most of you don't. Um, I, in the summer of 2004, uh, I had just graduated high school, and I was uh, working, I decided in between high school and college, I'd work at this camp called the Wilds in North Carolina, Brevard, North Carolina, up in the mountains. Beautiful setting, beautiful place. Uh, I had gone there a few times in, in when I was in high school and liked it. And so I thought, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go uh, serve Jesus and work at the Wilds, uh, making a dollar 64 an hour. Um, and I don't know how that's legal, but it, I don't know, I, whatever. Uh, I need some back pay from the Wilds camp. I don't know how that works exactly, but uh, that's what I made. And I never even saw a dime of it. It like automatically went for like my down payment uh, for college. Just, it was like a down payment for debt. You know what I mean? Like it was just, uh, whatever. Um, but anyways, this camp though is a really big camp. Really, I mean, really conservative. And, and I, just to give, maybe give you a little bit of perspective, I was required to shave twice a day because uh, we had to be clean shaven. And so by the evening when my, my uh, five o'clock shadow would come in, uh, that had to go too. Uh, and so I had to shave before the evening chapel as well. Uh, so it was very conservative. Okay, we'll just leave it at that. Uh, but we had, so we had chapel. This is a picture of one of the chapel services. There's about 1,100 campers that would come. And this is just a picture of the high school and junior high and high school, but there were little kids as well that were, I don't know, I never even saw them. I don't even know where they were. Um, uh, but anyways, this is kind of what it was. It was a very large camp, and we would have chapel twice a day. Uh, what's ironic, though, is on the screen, you can't really see it, uh, but it's Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, uh, which is, I just thought was kind of funny. It was like the one picture I could find of their chapel service online. And this was not when I was there, or it would be like on a Polaroid. Um, <laughs> digital images were not available back then. Um, and, but anyways, this is what it was. We just were in this giant gym, and we'd all you know, cram in there, and, and we, would have, we would have chapel. Um, but my, my job, though, that summer was a dishwasher. I was one of four full-time dishwashers. And, uh, and so you can imagine feeding 1,100 campers, not including staff, and, and so the mess hall or the dining hall wasn't big enough to have everybody. So they would come in two shifts. 
And the, the really annoying part, I'm not, I'm not bitter, I'm just saying there's room for improvement, okay, um, is that as a dishwasher, as you, as you see the way that they served people was family styles. They didn't do a buffet where you just had one plate and got your food. No, 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 no. No, we got to have a plate for the, for the tomatoes. We got to have a plate for the cheese. We got to have a plate for the burgers. We got to have a plate for the buns. We got to have a plate for the condiments. All that had to be washed. All, I mean, all of it, right? Um, again, I'm not, I'm not bitter. I'm just saying, it just didn't make a lot of sense to me, right? Um, anyways, I was a dishwasher, uh, learned a lot that summer, but I, I went into that uh, summer at this camp, very confused young man. Again, I was 17 years old, uh, and I was still mad. Uh, my, my father had passed away just a little over three years uh, at that point, and I was really struggling with some heavy stuff. Uh, and, the, and the biggest question I had, I remember I sat down with my boss. He was in charge of the, the kitchen. His name was Cal Mayer, uh, former uh, Navy uh, cook, and he ran, ran that place like the Navy. Um, he actually, every once in a while, he would randomly make the dishwashers eat off the floor um, just to make sure that we knew it was clean enough to eat off of. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you know, just make, you know, just double, you know. So it was clean. It was always very clean because uh, we never knew we'd have to eat off the floor. Um, and uh, anyways, uh, he, I, I really butt heads with that guy, right? We, we did not get along. He slapped me once uh, for using a, a Brillo pad on a plastic uh, bucket. Uh, that was fun. And uh, we butt heads a lot. But I remember at the beginning of the summer, um, he sat me down like he did with all the staff uh, that were in the kitchen staff. And he just said, hey, what can I help you with this summer? What are, you, what are you struggling with? How can I mentor you? How can I help you? And I didn't know the guy at that point at all. And, and, and we're, we're really close now. So it, it, a lot of this happened. I, look, I really look up to Cal. Um, I, needed, I needed that in my life at the time, which sounds weird, but I did. And I remember I, I looked at him and I just said, I don't think God is good. I believe in God. I believe that he is there. I believe that he is somehow manipulating things and he's just the ultimate puppet master, uh, but I don't think he's good. I, I really don't. I think he's really bad. Like Jesus is, is okay, but God is a total jerk. Uh, and I really struggled with this, um, this idea of God being good. And, and Cal didn't necessarily help me with that uh, that summer, but, but I, 45 minute drive away in South Carolina, there was a, a town called Greenville, which we called G Vegas uh, at the time. And, and I would drive every weekend, 45 minutes to my brother's house. He lived down there in Greenville and I would just spend time with my brother. He was a bachelor and we just would hang out and we would go to church together. And, and we went to this one church called Heritage Bible Chapel. I don't know what makes something a chapel versus a church, but whatever, that was the name of it. And I remember there was a college group, a bunch of college students, and there was this pastor. I don't remember his name, but I remember though, he um, had a title of a sermon one week when I went that was like, why do bad things happen to good people? And I'm, I was on the edge of my seat because that's, that's how it was. I viewed my, my father who had recently passed as a good man. He was a, he was a pastor. He, he gave his life to serving Jesus and his God. And I felt like God killed him, right? That's, that was what it felt like. And it didn't make any sense. And, and, and my dad was, was a good man. And so I, I'm sitting on the edge of my seat. And I remember he walked through Habakkuk and uh, a, a book, a prophet in the Bible, and basically came to the conclusion of no one is good. Good things don't happen, or bad things don't happen to good people. Only bad things happen to bad people. And I don't know what it was, but something about that just clicked for me. 
that no one is good but God, and that I am sinful, and I am unworthy of his love, and yet he chooses to love and pour out his mercy and his goodness to me, and something clicked that summer for me. That night, I remember just, I remember going back to my dorm room and I was talking to one of my roommates, Matthew Weathers. Um, I don't know why that name, that, that, that was his name. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you guys know him? You know, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, and, and I remember just like bawling my eyes out, like, because I, I didn't know why God wanted me to work at their, this job. It was terrible. It was horrible. It was, it was awful. And, and I was like, why am I here? This is, I was wanting to quit, but I'm not a quitter. And I was like, nah. And then all of a sudden it was like, Here, here's why. I, I needed you to hear this sermon. I needed you to, to ha- change your perspective of me to realizing that no one is good but God. And all of a sudden my anger and bitterness towards God in that moment just turned to praise and rejoicing. And I remember it was July 4th uh, of that summer and there was a big fireworks display, why not? You know, and, and John Philip Sousa in the background and I'm, I'm just bawling my eyes out. Because God was just, just working in my heart. And I just was, was seeing him as who he was and his love for me and his love for my dad uh, that my dad didn't deserve. And, and, and realizing no one's good. I remember going to my roommate, though, I'm like, I, now I know why God wanted me here. Now I kind of want to quit. Like now I got, I got what I needed and now I'm out. And that night my lung collapsed and I had to go home for surgery. So it kind of worked out, you know what I mean? Uh, so I didn't quit. Uh, my lung did, all right? Um, anyways, that's a whole nother, whole nother story. But last week uh, with Paul uh, preaching through the first three, four, ver- three verses of this, that seeing that no one is good but God. And we see this in the bad news of last week. And so I want to just reread this passage, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3. It says this, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. Not, not just the the things that I do that are bad or the things I don't do that are good, everything about me is tainted by sin. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And, and Paul last week, quoting Dane Ortland, said this, the mercy of God reaches down and rinses clean not only obviously bad people, but fraudulently good people, both whom stand in need of resurrection. And Paul used that idea that there is no good, bad binary, that we are all sinners, that we are all in need of God's mercy. And to quote Paul, and he quoted himself, so I think I'm allowed to use this, of just right before he comes to Jesus, his kind of, his last stand, his Alamo was, right, I'm not a sinner. I'm a good person. And Jesus opening Paul's eyes, again, our Paul and and the apostle, same thing happened, and saying, no, 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 you're not good. You're a sinner. You need me. You need my grace. And so going back to the 17-year-old me, It was good that I came to the conclusion that God was good and that I was in need of his mercy. But that was only half of my struggle because my struggle at that point then changed to, yes, God is good and he loves me, but man, I must be good because he loves me. There must have been something I did. There must be something about me because I was a good kid. Some of you know this, some of you don't. I literally got a $10,000 scholarship to go to college because I won the best Christian of the, in my school award. 
I was good. I followed the rules. I loved Jesus more than any of my classmates, clearly. It was all about me, and I thought I still was responsible for my salvation. But I had a, I had a guilty pleasure that summer. On my drive from the wilds in North Carolina down to G Vegas, I would listen to Switchfoot. Uh, it was, that was, that would have gotten me kicked out of camp real fast, right? So it was very, you had to be very stealthy about it. <laughs> you had to, you know, put the CD in, take it out, hide it somewhere. Because they would check. They, they, would, they would do checks in your car. What are your presets on your radio station? I'm not making that up. <laughs> but I listened to Switchfoot. Um, this was their album, A Beautiful Letdown. But they had a song in there called I Dare You to Move. And I remember every morning, it was like 5 a.m. And I would walk from my my dorm room, uh, down to the kitchen, because it's, you know, they start, cooks are there, or even earlier, making breakfast, and so you had to do dishes. This is all we did, all, did do dishes all day, from 5 a.m. to 10 p.m., was do dishes. Our breaks were eat, and then do dishes. <laughs> um, but as I would walk in the morning, the stars would still be out, and, you know, when I look at the star, and I would just be singing these Switchfoot songs, and, and there was a moment where this song, I Dare You to Move, really hit me. Because again, I thought myself, I thought I still did something. I thought I earned something, merited something. I thought I, I was the one who chose to be safe before God chose me. And, and the lyrics are this, I dare you to move. I dare you to move. I dare you to lift yourself up off the floor. I dare you to move. I dare you to move like today never happened, like today never happened. Maybe redemption has stories to tell. Maybe forgiveness is right where you fell. Maybe, or where can you run to escape from yourself? Where are you gonna go? Where are you gonna go? Salvation is here. And so today, after following the bad news of how evil and wicked and our transgressions are, we see now that in our wickedness and evilness, God loved us. We just sang it. You loved me while I was sinning. <laughs> That's the good news that we're going to look at today. So looking now at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, just titling the sermon, The Good News. The thing is, there is no such thing as good news without the bad news. It would just be news. Right? You got to have something negative to counteract to have something positive. The good news isn't good if I think I'm good. I'm good. We're good. We don't need good news, guys. I'm good. And so we need to know I'm not good, which is what Paul talked about last week. Think of, if you remember the, the old movie, the, uh, the Willy Wonka, uh, not, not the new one, the, not new, it's probably 20 years old still now, uh, but the old one, I forget the girl's name, Veronica, is that her name? The one that turns into the blueberry, right? What is it? Violet. Violet, of course, Violet. Uh, right, Violet, she's spoiled rotten. Daddy, I want the goose with the golden egg, right? Just spoiled rotten and daddy gives her everything that she wants. Oh, am I messing that up? Oh, that is Veronica. Oh, oh Veronica, sorry. Veruca. Oh, Veruca. All right, forget it. Whatever her name, Veruca. It's not important. Right, she's spoiled rotten. <laughs> all right, she's spoiled rotten. But you can imagine, right, when daddy's like, hey, all right, cool, I'll get you the goose with the golden egg. It doesn't mean anything to her. Right, it's only the kids that, right, the, the Charlie, right, who doesn't have anything that when he's given something that's precious, he sees the worth of the value of that. That was an impromptu uh, illustration there, obviously. 
<laughs> oh, man. So we need the bad. So I'm just going to read the bad again. And I, and I want this, again, to sit in. This is us because the good isn't so good without this bad. As for you, 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 me, I, you were dead, dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who were disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Uh, Augustine, um, he was the um, bishop of, of Canterbury in North Africa, long time ago, third century, fourth century, said, evil is the absence of good. It's kind of his definition of, of evil. And, and, and there's, it's really good. It's a really good definition, just as simple as it is. Uh, but the Latin that he would use to describe it as privatio or negatio, just privation or negation. In other words, there's no way to describe evil without talking about the good. You can't do it. Right? And so his examples, and this is obviously now in English, uh, but when we have language that we say someone is immoral, it only makes sense when I know what moral is. If someone is ungodly, I have to have godly. If someone's unholy, I have to have right, dishonorable. Now, obviously, there are other words to describe things that are bad, right, wrong, evil, right? But those, even those words, uh, their, their definitions are contingent upon a, a positive counterpart. It has to be there. That if I take away this positive counterpart of honorable, I don't know what dishonorable means. And that is true of today's passage. So in Ephesians chapter two, looking at verses four through seven, after all this bad, while you were dead and your transgressions worthy of nothing, deserving of wrath, but God. This is the ESV, the NIV, which we normally read from. It, it, has, it, it changes where the, these modifiers are. So it says like, uh, but because of his great love, God. <laughs> which, okay, I, I just want the but God, right? God comes in. I can't do it. You are deserving of wrath, but God. Not God saw how great you were. God. But God does something. He enters in. He intervenes. He makes the first move. But why does he do that? But God, being rich in mercy, and because of his great love with which he loved us, it's all about him and his love for us. But again, a 17-year-old kid in me, and maybe, maybe some of you here still, and again, I, I struggle with this on a daily basis, so we'll, we'll get to all that. I thought I still did something to merit the grace and the goodness of God. At least in some way, shape, or form, I was responsible for him saying, Brian, I love you. And me going, yeah, I, I know, because I love you. I did something. I was a good kid. I loved Jesus. I followed the rules. And so I had to ask myself that question that summer, are you sure it's only because of his love? Are you sure it's not something I did? Well, Paul tells us in this passage, but God, being rich in mercy because his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, dead 
in our trespasses, use that same language twice, dead in our sins and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Growing up uh, in the circles I did, in the churches I did, there was this illustration that would be given to someone that wanted to hear the gospel and accept the gospel. And it was akin to somebody drowning in water, right? They're, they're just doing everything they can to, to keep their head above water. They're gasping for air and someone throws a life preserver and all they have to do, all you have to do is grab on that life preserver and they'll pull you aboard and you'll be saved. The analogy would go something of like, that's you. You're drowning in your sin. You're hardly keeping your head above water. And then Jesus comes along and he throws himself as this life preserver into the water. And all you have to do is say, Jesus, I need you. And you, you grab on to Jesus and then he, he saves you. All you have to do is reach out and grab it. The problem is, can a dead man grab a life preserver? No. Can a dead man recognize the love and the mercy that God has displayed for him and say, I want that? Or is it, I'm 10,000 leagues under the sea? And this is kind of a weird picture. Um, it is a concrete sculpture garden under the sea. Uh, it's a thing, I guess. But it worked. That's us. We're a dead man laying on the bottom of the ocean. There is no life. There is no breath. You're dead. I'm dead in my trespasses and my sins. But God. Again, another quote. Paul read this last week, but this is very pertinent to what we're looking at right now. Christ was not sent to mend wounded people or wake up sleepy people, or advise confused people, or inspire bored people, or spur on lazy people, or educate ignorant people, but to raise dead people. Well, is this just an analogy? I mean, Paul, Paul, yeah, okay, he used the word dead. Did he mean dead? Well, let's look at other authors of the Bible. There's a lot of them, but let's look at some other passages, even going to the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 36, 26 through 27. God says to his people, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone and from your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Dr. Luke in the book of Acts says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. She didn't even know what that meant. She just knew there was, there was something spiritual about it. She wanted to worship God, but she didn't know who this God was. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now you, you got to imagine, small church, house, house church setting, maybe larger just because of, of Paul's fame and the apostles and things that were going on and the spread of the gospel and the good news. And the apostle Paul is preaching and there's a woman named Lydia there whose heart is opened. Her, her mind is able to comprehend the things that Paul is saying. Why? Because Lydia was smarter than anyone else in the room? Because she was a worshiper of God? Because she was more attuned to things? No, because God opened her heart. 
And then her heart is open and she sees God. She sees Jesus as beautiful and says, that's what I want. That's what I've been looking for. She can't grab the life raft. The life raft is shoved into her face. First Peter chapter one, three through five says this, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again in a living hope, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guaranteed through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. So not only does he cause us to be born again, but then there, he's, he's guarding us through the faith. I know there might be some of you who are like, okay, is this like a, like a sermon on like, you know, Calvinism or election? I'm not, it's not what I'm trying to do. I'm really not. I know it's like, you just did that. I'm not trying to do that. All I'm trying to do is read the text. That's why we do this, preaching through a, a text of the Bible. God does this. You, you're dead and now you're alive. How's that work? God makes the first move. He alone Quickens us. Quickens us is a, is a word, the language that King James uh, uses this language that he forced us to move. Ephesians chapter two, four through seven, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses, he quickened us. He made us alive together with Christ. We were 10,000 leagues under the sea and he gets his defibrillator going, right? Charge, clear, heart beating and a heart beating that looks at Jesus and says, I want that. I see you now as good and beautiful and lovely. And then he raises us up and we are seated with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's interesting because I can read this and I go, mm, I don't seem to be seated in the heavenly places. <laughs> and I'm, I'm still here. Uh, there's still pain, there's still suffering. This kind of sucks down here. When is this gonna happen? But the language here that Paul used, this is ongoing, this happened. That when you were made alive and you believed and you put your faith in Jesus, because you have to do that, when that happens, I'm seated at the right hand of God. It's what theologians call this already not yet. To illustrate this, I often go, to the Exodus story. This is a painting from uh, the Prince of Egypt and uh, the scene uh, that, that Moses, uh, by the power of God, parts the Red Sea and the Israelites are, are walking through. But if you were to interview an Israelite, a Hebrew, that is on the, the banks before the water is parted and they're standing there and the Egyptian army is pouring down the hillside towards them, ready to slaughter them all. And you were to be, you know, Channel 9 News, whatever that is, I don't know if that's a thing. And they said, hey, uh, what's going through your mind right now? Yeah, I'm dead. We're, we're all dead. Unless God saves us, we're dead. And what happens? God makes a way. God makes the first move and then they respond and they walk through. We're not, we're not told of anybody who's like, uh, I think I'd rather just get slaughtered. I don't think I wanna go. Oh, maybe that happened. It doesn't seem likely. It seems like when God makes a way and you can see the good news and salvation, usually people run through that door and then they go across, right? And if you were to get to the other side and say, hey, what's going through your mind? What's happening right now? They would say, man, I, I was dead. God saved me. And now, now we're on our way to the promised land. 
We're not there yet, though. We're not there yet. But someday we'll be there. And you could ask the same thing of anybody in this room who's a believer in Jesus to say, I was dead in my sins, but God loved me while I was sinning. He provided a way of salvation. He makes the first move. He opened my heart and my mind and I saw him as good and gracious and lovely and beautiful. And I said, yes, I want that. And he forgave me of my sins and I'm going to the promised land, but I'm not there yet. So the question then is, why does God do this? Well, again, in this passage, Paul answers that question. Why does God quicken some? Why does God awaken some people? Why does he save anybody? Why so that? In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Again, this privatio, negatio, we can't We can't know the good without the bad. And that's why the Apostle Paul starts, this is where we were and now we're here. You were dead and now you're alive. You were in darkness and now you're in light because God didn't have to save anybody. He didn't have to. He didn't have to give a chance of redemption for any human being. He could have said, nope, you're done, you're done. And he would have been just because we're sinners. As humanity, we've already rebelled against him. We chose ourselves and the creation over him. And he would have been just in doing that. And there should only be bad news. The story should end there. The story should end in Genesis chapter three. But instead, because of his love, because of his immeasurable riches, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, he chooses to save some to become, God then just becomes the just and the justifier, according to Romans chapter three, so that he can demonstrate his immeasurable riches. We have the bad news. We're bad. We're bad people. God makes us alive. He opens the eyes of our heart. Isn't that a song? Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you, <laughs> right? That's, that's it. I want to see you. God opens the eyes and we see him for the first time. Beautiful, glorious, who loves me, who died for me, and we willingly run. Nobody comes to Jesus kicking and screaming. That doesn't happen. We're not dragged in. He reveals himself to us. He opens the eyes of our heart and we see him as good and beautiful and we run to him. And he gladly embraces us. Now, here's the big question. Because at this point, this point, you're new, new to church or you're new to Christianity, you heard, you heard the gospel. You heard a way to go from death to life. How do we do that? You see Jesus, he reveals himself to you. You go, yeah, I want that. Faith, boom, done, saved, done, period. Sin's done, gone, nailed to the cross. Removed as far as the east is from the west. Great, cool, I'm in now. Great, great message, cool, great, thanks, Paul. Here's the big question. Who's Paul writing this letter to? Who's he writing it to? This is not a, this is a rhetorical question. He's writing it to the church. What, Paul, come on, man. If I'm part of the church, if I'm already born again in Jesus, if I've already gone from death to life, man, why are you telling me about this? Because church, we need this every day. 
not just to be reminded, reminded of what Jesus did, that's great. No, 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 I need this on a daily basis to be reminded that I am sinful and I am in need of a savior daily, moment by moment. I need this. The church needs this. Because it's not about me. It's not about me being better than you. It's not about me being a better communicator of God's word than you. It's not me being a better a prayer than you or whatever it is. It's not about that because I'm not that. It's Jesus done but God. And now I see him and I want to worship him. I want to love him. But God's love is not contingent upon me doing something or being better than somebody else. And what this should do is humble all of us. Can I, can I say that I think as Christians, we should be the most humble people in the world? Am I allowed to say that these days? Because it sure doesn't feel like it. We should be the most humble people in the world. I'm not better than anybody. I need to be reminded of that. Last night as I was going over my notes, I, I, I don't know what it is. I have a, a weird knack for remembering random quotes from movies. And, uh, and I was working on this and I... I remembered this movie, uh, something, it's called Coach Carter. Uh, it came out in 2005. You probably don't even remember this. If you even saw it, uh, whatever, that's no big deal. Samuel L. Jackson, he's a basketball coach of a, of a, a school in a neighborhood that's not uh, wealthy or well-off. It's a very poor school, and he's coaching some young kids who don't have a good role model, fill in the blank, whatever it is, right? It's based on a true story. Uh, that the majority of these kids would end up in jail and, and Carter takes them by the hand and wins a state championship. Does he win? Do they win? No, they lose. I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't remember. I really don't. I don't remember if they won the state championship or lost. It doesn't matter. Um, but either way, here's the point. There's a scene that's happening where Coach is out there with his, his group and they're, they're starting to do really well. They're starting to win a lot of games and they're and then what happens is they're in practice and someone makes a move, you know, and, and dunks and, and they're, you know, pounding their chest like, yeah, man, look at me. Look how good I am. And so the next play, Coach Carter, he runs this play and the same thing happens. And he goes, he goes, man, look how good I am. Did you see that? I did that. I wrote that up. Run it again. And they do. They run it again. Same thing happens. Guy gets open, goes to the bucket, makes a layup. Yeah. Woo. I did that. I wrote that up. See how good I am? And then one of the players looks at him and says, coach, your uh, shoe's untied. And he ties his shoe and he stands right up. Woohoo! look at that bow. I made that bow. I think that's us in our Christianity. That Jesus saves us. And now I'm in, I'm in the in crowd. And I now look at all the other people and say, man, look how good I am. I'm a better host than you. I'm a better preacher than you. I'm a, I'm a better Bible studier than you. I'm a better everything. I'm a better driver than you. Fill it in. It's all about me and how good I am. In a really cool way, Coach Carter, though, he goes to his team and he says, when was winning not enough? And I think that's a word for the church today. <laughs> To quote Samuel Jackson from Coach Carter, when was Jesus' victory over your sins not enough? When do we have to start taking credit for how good we are? He did it. He finished the work on the cross. He nailed our sins to the cross. He forgave our sins. The wrath of God was diverted from me and poured out on him. 
And then he comes along and he wraps his righteousness, his purity around me and calls me his brother and he stands with me for me to go, I got this. When was his victory not enough? We need this, we need this. We need this every single day. Jesus won. Jesus wrote that play up. Who am I to try to steal his glory? So in gospel application, but God. We could take this any number of ways. One is, but God woke you up. He quickened you. He made you alive. And there might be some here that are saying, I I think I'm dead. I, I don't know if I've ever seen Jesus I don't know if I've ever seen him as beautiful and glorious as a forgiver of my sins that I don't have to do something. I'm, I'm so used to organized religion putting me down, telling me how wicked I am, and then saying, I got to do this, 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 and this. I got to pray this and confess this and go to this person and then go on this pilgrimage or go do this thing and, and give all this money to the church and give. I've never seen it as he just does it. And maybe today you need to repent and turn towards God because as God opens your eyes, maybe you're sitting there like Lydia and God's opening your eyes, you need to put your faith in Jesus. You need to believe that today can be the day of repentance. There may be some of you that don't remember and don't realize that it is Jesus who keeps me awake. He sustains me. But God quickens me, wakes me up when I have done nothing but God, this should make me humble and let the victory of Jesus be enough. We're gonna have communion like we do every Sunday here at Lower Town. Like always, you don't have to be a member of this church. You don't have to be a member of any church. You don't have to be a regular attender of this church or any church. But if you say, no, God took me from death to life and now I see him and I want to bend the knee to King Jesus. I want to worship him. I want to follow after him. In spite of my weaknesses, in spite of my downfallings, in spite of my hypocrisy, in spite of my sinfulness, he still loves me. Now that I can get on board with. If that's you, I would love for you to partake of these elements today. The juice that represents his blood that was shed for you to cover your sins, not his, your sins. His body, the wafer that was broken for us. So our bodies don't have to be broken. We get to partake of these elements and remember what it is. And so maybe this morning we need to remember what it was once to walk in darkness and thank Jesus for that. But also we might need to remember, it's not about me. It's all about Jesus on his throne. I can't do anything. I can't earn it. He can't love me anymore than what he loves everybody else. And I need to remember that. I need to be humbled today. I need to be put in my place and give God the glory. Worship team is gonna play two songs. And so during that time, feel free to come up, grab those elements and reflect, confess sin, pray, uh, sing along. And we're gonna rejoice and partake of these elements and remember what it is that Christ did until he returns and makes that already not yet, yet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. I think back to when I was just a kid, so confused about who you were. So confused about your goodness, seeing death, sickness, 
around me and being so confused, how could a God be good? But coming to the realization that you are just and it's only because of your mercy, it's only because of your grace that I can see you for who you are. That you didn't have to save me, you didn't have to save anybody. But because of your immeasurable riches, you reached down into my filth and saved me. So God, I pray this morning, every single one of us, whether it's our first time hearing the gospel, whether it's our, our, our hundred millionth time hearing this gospel, that we would apply that to our lives on a daily basis and we'd remember that you wrote this up, that Jesus is the one who wins. And I just get to be part of the team. So God, I pray now as we partake these elements, you'd be honored, you'd be glorified because you are seated on your throne and you are worthy of honor and praise. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.